I've selected this. I've put my name to this film. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I've, I'm going on to <laughs> Crooked Table, and I'm going to say The Station Agent. That's what I'm about, baby. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. On this episode, I am pleased to welcome to the show Michael Denniston. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. I'm I'm just glad you got my uh, name right because I'm like, does he know which host is coming from this like Twitter account that you contacted? <laughs> and uh, if you had said the other guy, I was I was not going to correct you. I was just going to you know play as he would play it for uh, for this chosen film. <laughs> well, that, that's why it helps you know that uh, that we have the form for people to fill out for the email mm-hmm. address and things like yeah. that. Because sometimes yeah, sometimes people. I mean, the at crooked table Twitter account is, is I run that one as well as my at Robert Yannis Jr. And so a lot of shows do the same kind of thing where you're running uh, you're basically i guess not hiding behind it but you're really just promoting the mm-hmm. the uh, the show you I mean you do the same thing so i don't have to explain it to you but you're promoting you're acting as you as if you are the show personified i guess so um, so yeah so you run into that sometimes so it helps to clarify that but um yeah of course so welcome to the show and uh, can you tell people uh, a little bit about what you have going on i know um that i think I'm not even sure exactly. I think I just saw your your Twitter feed pop up. I don't know if you started following me or vice versa first, but um, you have a podcast that centers on the movies of 1999, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of a side quest that I've been sort of working into this podcast over the course of the year. Talked about Office Space and The Matrix and things like that. So there's a lot of great films in that uh in that year. So tell people a little bit about your show and uh, anything else you have going on. Yeah, I think, uh, I remember uh, I'll, I'll date myself. So, you know, I don't know how young your, your demo is, but I'll, I'll be the old guy in the room and say, uh, 1999 was sort of a formative uh, year for me as far as my love of film, because I was 16 at the time. So I could drive and all right, good. I'm, so I'm, I'm with good people here. (laughs) Uh, good upstanding folk. And so I, you know, it was the first time in my life I could just, if I was interested in a movie, I would just drive and see it. You know, I, I didn't, uh, and it's a strange, strange year because there's actually a lot of stuff that I probably should not have uh, been able to, to see. Like, uh, I mean, you have, <laughs> you have Stanley Kubrick's eyes wide shut, which is one of my, my, my favorite films. And, you know, that's, that's probably one that 16 year old, um, maybe, you know, shouldn't have allowed, uh, to, to see at the time. But, uh, thankfully I was able to, uh, you mentioned, uh, the matrix. There's just a ton of like sort of, I think pop cultural touchstones from from that particular year, and I remembered uh, towards the end of the year, uh, I think there was like an Entertainment Weekly um, cover issue that was like, "Was this the greatest year in film?" Right. And then you know, I've heard uh, you could go like with thirty nine. Um, I actually just discovered another uh, podcast that's called. I'll, I'll go ahead and promote them because it's you know if you're a movie podcaster, it's always good to have other people promoting your stuff instead of just promoting <laughs> your own. Uh, I think it's called oldie, but a goodie and, uh, they are covering, uh, sort of the same thing we're doing, uh, 1994 and uh, film. But what they do is they just cover like one new release as if, uh, you know, whatever came out, say we're recording this, uh, the second week of July, they just pick a movie that came out the second week of July from 1994 and they cover it, which I thought was cool. Yeah. 
Uh, but over at uh, 99 from 99, me and my buddy Ben, um, you know, we also sort of want to distance ourselves from like doing a podcast that's just like the new release because it's very time consuming and you kind of are like a gambler as yep. far as like, <laughs> you know, what's going to be presented to you that weekend. It's also what same thing that everybody else is, is doing too. It's like, there's only so many podcasts you can have about the latest Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, whatever thing. It's, yeah. I'm always, uh, I guess, you know, grateful for the, the, the movie podcast, super fans that will like check off, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten of the new release podcasts. And I, I you know, for me, I'd have to really love your show, <laughs> but it's like, you know, I could probably hear like two or three uh, on the same movie from that week. And at that point, uh, no matter how good your content is, I, I'm probably like tapped out on the conversation on, you know, Spider-Man far from home, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. Uh, so the, the different thing we're doing at uh, 99 from 99, uh, pretty much just because uh, my co-host, I think he was 15 at the time, also had the same passion of wanting to re- revisit something from our youth. Uh, was a bit stupid to decide, hey, we're going to do 99 episodes because <laughs> it's catchy, right? 99 from 99. Uh, and so what we've ended up doing is we've truly programmed it to where there's stuff that we didn't like when we were teenagers and we're revisiting for the first time. And then, as I mentioned, with like, you know, The Matrix or Eyes Wide Shut, they're like, you know, the bigger films that a lot of people really cherish. And we're revisiting them uh, probably not for the first time since 1999. So it's pretty much uh, it's a nice little time travel trip for us. And uh, we try to keep the episodes to about a half hour, uh, 40 minutes. And we try to, you know, put it in the context of the time. Uh, if there's any sort of, you know, uh, political or sort of social issues that are you know presented in a different way from two decades ago as they would be now. Uh, pretty common refrain as we we talk about you know would this movie be released now or would it be released you know in the in the same form. Um, so it's 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 a lot of fun if you're a movie lover and you want sort of a deep dive into a particular year. Uh, listen to that other show, uh, Oldie but a Goodie, because it's much better than Nine Nine from Nine Nine. But if you have a second choice. Listen to our show because it's it's all right. It's decent enough. <laughs> I'm so glad that you you guys get into the sort of the context behind the film because that's something that's really fascinated me just over the years. That I I was also an Entertainment Weekly reader at the time. The Matrix I think was my my big cinematic awakening where it's like oh movies there's a lot more to them than just you know. Mm-hmm. Some like escapism. There's like an art behind it. That was where I really started to understand and have a, a deeper appreciation for film. Uh, so that's I think that's also another reason why '99 is is sort of an important year for me. Um, but but you know to your point, there was something in the zeitgeist at that moment where. All these films, and I actually have an upcoming episode on Fight Club, another 1999 film, Mm -hmm. that all these films of that year were all basically anti-establishment against the system, breaking out out of the, you know, breaking out of your cubicle, breaking out of your limitations. And I'm not, do you have any insight into exactly what, you know, what was going on, I guess, socially or politically at that point that everybody was just like in this very rebellious uh, state artistically? It's something that we've we've talked about. Probably, you know, you brought up Office Space is like a really good one, uh, and then another one that'll be coming up that'll be framed in a unfortunately an entirely different context would be American Beauty, just because of, of Kevin Spacey and his sort of standing in the industry right now and in pop culture. Um, but yeah, that that was sort of a common refrain. And when we talked about Office Space, you know, I, I had a very different response to it now than I 
you know, I watched it then as a teenager and I remember having the DVD on like in college and, you know, that's a terrible thing to like, if you have any sort of like even the minimum amount of responsibilities, you know, do not put on office space or fight club, you know, for that year <laughs> or American beauty where you're like, you know what? Uh, I am just going to smoke weed or I'm going to uh, just uh, play Tetris at work all day and just blow everything off. Uh, I, I actually think it's because, you know, we were on, you know, that, in that time period, that's the first, I guess, internet bubble. You know, that's the, the you know times. From what I remember as a teenager, with not too much my responsibilities economically, things were good. And you know, the biggest controversy we had going on then was uh, who the president was sleeping with or not. Right. You know, it was it was there was like a sort of playful sort of devil may care attitude. And when I watch Office Space now, I think, man. Most people aspire to have like a comfortable job. Maybe they're not totally respected. Maybe they're not totally like into what they're doing from like a passionate perspective. Uh, but it's not you know the dire straits that people would have. Certainly, when you get to like 2007, 2008, with an economic crisis and people losing their homes, and I mean, not even getting into now like the sort of political landscape, and it just it feels at times a little trite and I think it's probably aged up those films and made them even far more nostalgic than probably what they should be. Cause I, I don't think people, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, so I'll, I'll toss it to you as a question. I mean, do you feel like people are as, as nostalgic for stuff like from 2009? Cause I, I would be hard pressed to like tell you like, Oh, that, those, that was the, the year of X, Y, and Z films from 2009. Yeah, no, not so much. I mean, it's, I don't know, maybe it hasn't been long enough, I guess, because people are still talking about The Dark Knight as, as it came out like five years ago, even though it was 11 years ago at this point. We're getting uh, old. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so I don't know. I think it's it's something to do with the generation that was 30s, 40s, facing the workforce uh, and, and really kind of in the thick of it, maybe in 99. And then to us, just growing up with it, it just seemed kind of like, like, you know, uh, cinema was very punk rock in 1999, basically. And that's the, that's the appeal for people our age. I, I'm not exactly sure. It's just, well, it's pre nine 11 too. You mentioned yeah, dark Knight and yeah. like, you know, that, that Batman trilogy, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it would be totally different if it was not only if it was made in the nineties with, you know, the, the bat nipples and all that stuff, but even if it was made by a filmmaker with, let's say Christopher Nolan with similar sensibilities, somehow he's just more successful in the nineties. They're very different if they're coming out and nine 11 has not happened. And you see that, I think that's probably why I'm not as interested in revisiting the films from, you know, the, the early uh, mid two thousands as much as because, you know, that it felt it felt like you were sticking your head in the sand if you weren't sort of playing to that tone or commenting on this new framework of the country and the world at that point. And so, yeah, and for me, like 99 feels kind of like a, a last gasp of that before like the world changed in a dramatic way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we just recently did a, a string of episodes on movies I didn't like, like, <laughs> you know, Awesome Powers 2 and Big Daddy and, uh, even though I dislike those films, uh, it's still cool to go back and revisit the time when Adam Sandler, you know, was releasing a comedy about him hanging out with like a four-year-old, and it was a big event for people to go out and see, and not just something people make fun of on Netflix. You know, it's just uh, just a, a ton of stuff has just changed, even just uh, in movie terms, as a cinematic 
uh, fan. So yeah, I don't know. I, it, maybe it's just we're old. Maybe I'm just old and I'm just <laughs> saying that everything was better then and it's really not, but at least on our podcast it is. So well, it that's was, where we're stuck. It was better for us because we were teenagers and didn't have to worry about all these, all the implications right, yeah. of everything going on in the world. I think that's part of it too. But can you imagine like, uh, you know, if podcasting was a thing then, like how, like I'll speak for myself again, how terrible, like my points of view would be or my, if I was doing a podcast and it was like a new release podcast in 1999, that would be like terrible, terrible radio. <laughs> I think I think I speak better about movies when I have some distance from them anyway. Yeah, so I, I like to sit with things first. So yeah. that's why I'm excited to come on your show and talk about you know a film that is just as impactful and well known as The Dark Knight with the station agent. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but I mentioned to you right before we started recording that I, that's. Part of what I like about doing this show is that we can go from, I just posted, as of this recording, I just posted an episode on Skyfall, which has very much a kind of post 9-11 Dark Knight-esque mm-hmm. vibe to yeah. it, and is over a billion dollar grosser to this one, which, let me see, uh, grossed a total of 8 million worldwide. <laughs> there we go. So, you know, what? but that's actually... It's really, that's far more impressive than what I would have thought that it would have accomplished now. Like, yeah, this is... First off, I don't think this movie is like made. If it is, I think it's like straight to video on demand in this day and age. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This would be like this would be maybe a Netflix movie. Not even maybe not even big enough to be a Netflix movie. Right. No. Uh, so so yeah, so it's it was it's it's good that you're getting a little bit of break from uh from nineteen ninety nine. So before <laughs> <laughs> I was thankful for that, because when you invited me on, I'm like, So do you do you want me to pick a movie from nineteen ninety nine? Because I I'll I'll find one we've not covered, but it'll, it'll probably be pretty bad. But thankfully you said no, no, how about you do something else so i want yeah. a station agent give give you a break from from that from that year yeah, cinema. yeah. Uh, but before we before we move 100 from 99 i wanted to ask you since you're you've been re-watching or watching for the first time so many films from that year is there something that you've gone back and that you have a radically different opinion on or maybe something that you hadn't seen from 1999 that you're just now discovering and and want to uh, share with listeners yeah so uh i'm i guess that's uh two different answers there i I mentioned Big Daddy, which I think I was indifferent to as a teenager, which probably meant that was like a negative review. But I just didn't realize how negative I was going to be on it until I was like a, an adult. And I just, you know, I, I looked at Big Daddy as if it was an artifact from a completely different society centuries ago. Where I'm like, <laughs> I don't. It kind don't of know, is. <laughs> like, I don't know why people. I uh, thought this was funny. Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't get it. I actually, it had me questioning, like, the other previous, like, Adam Sandler films, like, uh, that I had enjoyed. And I've not, I've not watched Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, probably as an adult. And so now I probably won't, because I, I don't have, I didn't have any negative feelings in particular about Adam Sandler uh, at this point in my life, because if he came out with something I didn't have interest in, like, say, Grown Ups, I just didn't watch it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I, I do remember, like, you know, seeing Big, Daddy's a teenager because that's it's an Adam Sandler movie. I'm a I'm a teenage boy. That's what I'm gonna do. And uh, man, when I watched this adult, I was just like so like angry about it. And I think it's you know it's probably an episode don't listen to. I'm gonna be the guy that comes on another podcast and said don't listen to that episode that I did because it wasn't good because I think I actually scared my co-host where he was like all right you're like getting like too upset about something that came out 20 years ago. So thankfully there was. Um, a film that came out around the same time period called An Ideal Husband that's based on an Oscar Wilde play. And I'm not, you know, literary scholar, don't have much experience with Oscar Wilde other than 
dating some girls in college that would have his quotes, like those like refrigerator magnets and stuff. Like that's, that is my sort of English background in that regard. So it was something I really like didn't think I'd like. uh, And I had a lot of fun with that one. And uh, unfortunately for my co-host, that was his big daddy moment where it was a film (laughs) that he remembered liking. And then when he watched as adult, he didn't, didn't really uh, get into it, but that one's got uh Mini Driver and Rupert Everett in it. Uh, Julianne Moore is like the big villain, and I love Julianne Moore and her getting a chance to like play the heel is always great. So yeah, uh, an ideal husband and big daddy have been the like two that I like came into like thinking like okay I'm gonna you know enjoy that okay I'm gonna dislike that one and it was it was totally flipped. Um, and then there's stuff like you know The Matrix which. Um, you mentioned you probably don't ever get too much distance from because it was such like a a pop culture like titan you know like that it's it's going to stay in your your head those like sequences that even watching it now even if it had been like four or five years i'm just like way too familiar with it to give like a fresh take on it yeah absolutely no and that's and the matrix is one of my one of my very favorite movies so it's it's also funny just going back to a very since you're going back to a very specific point in cinema history how much things have changed and the fact that now adam sandler is basically you know detested in most circles and a pariah kind of rupert everett is clearly never going to lead a movie again probably never did after an ideal husband at least not you know a major release like that and how keanu reeves went down and then found his way back up now with john wick and like everything is cycling around it's like a drastic change for all three of those uh, of those lead stars so that's kind of funny um also because you mentioned an ideal husband which i was familiar with when it came out but i never got a chance to watch and this is actually a good transition uh, that is actually also on Hoopla, which is the library system where I found this All film right, on. So uh, I just marked that as a favorite. So I'll have to go check that out on your recommendation. So uh, listen. A lot of pressure play. on me now. I, <laughs> I should have picked something else because now now you're gonna you're gonna blame me. I'm gonna angry tweet wrong. you. I'm gonna mm-hmm. angry tweet you. But like, come just, on, just, Michael. Make sure to angry tweet me and Hoopla if they have an account because you, you know go. they're they're the ones that are providing that fix. I I made a poor choice in recommending it to you, but they're the ones bringing it home. So <laughs> yeah, as long as I'm tagged alongside them, they're supposed to curate their content. I, exactly. I assume. I mean, you know. don't leave it up to me. I'm just an idiot. I'm just an idiot with a podcast, like many other idiots. Yeah, you'll find uh, online. Like me. Like yeah. There's, there's a million of us. <laughs> Millions of us. Uh, so that's a good, that's kind of a, a decent transition into the film we're going to be talking about this episode, The Station Agent from 2003. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Finn is about to start a new life. Where do you live? In the depot. What grade are you in? I'm finished with school. Oh. Olivia is leaving her old life behind. I'm so sorry. Can I give you a ride somewhere? No. You sure? Yes. How you doing? And Joe. Do you sell coffee? Where are you from? Hoboken. I live in Manhattan, dude. Just doesn't have a life. I've been here for six weeks. It's driving me crazy. But together. Hey, how you doing out there? We don't have to talk. We can just eat. Okay. They're trying to get their lives back on track. This was fun, right? Yeah. You have a nice chin. Very lucky, bro. She's a pretty woman. You're the man. What do you mean? You're the man. Okay. 
That was a little bit of the trailer for The Station Agent from 2003, written and directed by Tom McCarthy. As I mentioned, not a huge box office draw, a total of 8.7 worldwide, 5.7 domestic, but it had a budget of 500000 So considering this movie is so tiny, like what is your what is your experience with it? Did you see it initially when it came out? And why is this the one that you wanted to talk about, other than the fact that it didn't come out in 1999? Of <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a lot of choices, right? I had every other year to go with. Exactly. But. Um, no, I, I don't remember when I saw, I did not see this on initial release. Uh, I don't know, uh, being in Lexington, Kentucky, I don't know if it, it came my way. Uh, maybe we have one art house theater that could have played it, but I, I certainly wasn't familiar with it because this was, uh, Tom McCarthy directed this, which now I guess with the, the, the spotlight victory would mm-hmm. have uh, a little bit more recognition but i think at the time just like oh that's like a character actor and he's he's doing this very small movie with some other character actors um that so there wasn't anyone in this film that i'm like oh, i've got to see uh this peter dinklage guy i've got to got to see what this is about or uh patricia clarkson um i'm pretty sure if i can i don't remember but it's likely that I bought this DVD at like <laughs> a Hollywood or Blockbuster video going out of business and was like just buying up stuff that I didn't think I'd ever like see again. You know, this is like right before like Netflix became huge and like streaming became huge. And so I was not so much like a collector, like I was like, you know, getting the best stuff, but I was kind of a hoarder of things. Uh, and I think I like purchased stuff in fear that I would never have access to it again. Right. So it's like, <laughs> so I was like curating my own library. So before like the streaming wars, you know, happen, it seems like every day now we have another service that's like saying you can only see our films if you pay us a subscription fee. I was doing that myself. So I've, I've got my own little bunker that my wife sort of makes fun of as, <laughs> as far as these random things, these random movies that I've got on my shelf, a lot of which I've not watched yet. Uh, <laughs> but this is one that for whatever reason one day I just, Pulled it off the shelf and I was like, all right, let's see what I spent like a dollar or two on. Um, and when you asked me to, to come on the show, which I really appreciate, by the way, because I, I started listening to it. Um, and I like I, you, <laughs> you've covered some like classic stuff. So you mentioned like Skyfall, of course, the big like, you know, box office success, but like some like it hot. And so like yeah. as I was listening to those episodes, I'm like, wow, I'm going to I'm coming to like bat with the station agent. Maybe I made a <laughs> wrong choice, <laughs> but like I think I, I gave you like three because like the mood you caught me in when we were having these like DMs. Uh, I was like, I don't know if I don't know if I was depressed. I don't know what was going on with me, but I'm like, I want to let's do a conversation on movies about loners. And so the other two was up in the air, George Clooney, which uh, was you know more successful, and Shame, uh, the the Michael Fassbender sex addiction movie. Um, so clearly, like you know, I'm I'm looking at stuff where I want the characters to be somewhat unlikable. Uh, and I don't know if you felt that way, but Peter Dinklage for you know good stretches here. Um, you know, he's certainly not the most charming dude. You know, he's a, he's a man of few words and he basically wants silence and he wants to be left alone and he's going through a grieving process. So I don't know, you know, it doesn't really explain my personality too much because I'm not really like a dark character most of the time. So if you'd caught me, you know, on another week, I might have said, hey, let's do Bridesmaids because Bridesmaids is funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I like John Hamm playing like a dick. So, uh, but for whatever reason this week, I was like, let's let's go with um, movies about characters like kind of keeping all their emotions like and their cards like to themselves. And so that's that's why I chose The Station Agent. What's weirdly also 
kind of timely in that Game of Thrones recently mm. ended. Mm-hmm. Peter Dinklage now, like literally everybody knows who he is because of that show. And on, in this movie, which was the first time that I think he really broke out, uh, this was before, actually this was the same year as Elf, which is the other big role, like movie role that people know him from, that and Death at a Funeral, X-Men Days of Future Past. But this is one of his few lead roles uh, on film. And he's playing a character that couldn't be more different than Tyrion Lannister here. And, you know, that coupled with the fact that Tom McCarthy did it and I'm a a fan of Spotlight. I thought The Visitor was really interesting. So it's, you know, a chance for me to fill in some holes in his filmography as well. Um, But I, I, I do really think that Dinklage's work here is really interesting and it really demonstrates his range the fact that he is playing such an unassuming and and introverted character here and and he he toes that line between being sympathetic and being off-putting you know because we understand Mm -hmm. a little bit where he's coming from especially early in the movie i mean this is an ongoing thread throughout but obviously you know this film is is about a, a man with dwarfism who inherits an abandoned trade station in small new jersey town so it's a lot of him being you know reacted to by the the residents of uh, of the town and the bars that he goes with frequent, just him walking around and people kind of, you know, mocking him or just, you know, uh, otherwise being preoccupied with this fact that there's this little person there. And yeah, uh, even if they're overly friendly, right. It's that right. And it's, he, and it's not genuine seeming. Right. And he, or, he, or even if it is, he's very suspicious of it. And I think they, you know, the movie, I feel like lays that on a little bit thick in the first maybe 20 minutes where, you know, they, they're really trying to drive, drive home the fact that he that he is treated differently by everyone which is realistic but at the same point uh you know i I don't know i i I thought that was an interesting an interesting dynamic to portray because we haven't really seen that on film before when you have dwarfs uh on screen it's usually for i mean as i mentioned elf where it's basically a gag in that film and and it's it's you know there's all these films about about race and different other sociopolitical issues and things like that so it's interesting to to delve into the world of dwarfism and what it's like to to put some put us in uh in those shoes yeah i mean it's it's also got that that small town vibe right where right you assume even you know given his the interest that's garnered for him uh genuine or not based on his his height um there would be some of that from, you know, if it was a six foot tall dude, you know, just that moves into town. Like you could see like a version of this where uh, Michelle Williams plays a very small part as a librarian, you know, and she seems to come from uh, an unhappy or uh, maybe unfulfilling relationship. Maybe not always unhappy, but certainly uh, not the way she projects herself where she wants to be, even at this young point in her life. You know, she may just grasp on to uh, someone with an outsider's perspective just because she feels like she she knows everybody in this town and she's still like sort of left wanting. Um, but I, I I wondered on rewatch because I <laughs> stupidly, I guess, I sort of threw out all three of them and it was just like – I remember liking all three of those movies. Yeah. <laughs> and and so with this one, uh, after we decided on it, uh, I was like, ooh, I really hope they handle that sort of you know thread. You mentioned Elf, where it's like used as a gag. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, I hope that it's not just like, let's watch this this man sort of take abuse 
for an hour and a half and and then have a big speech where you know the audience is made to feel bad for him um thankfully it doesn't do that it becomes this sort of examination of of people who they don't want to need other human beings but at that particular moment they kind of need like some it's like they need some buffer from the rest of the world or maybe a buffer like from like where their thoughts would take them because you see a couple of characters here um who do tempt fate is you know with with suicidal thoughts basically mm-hmm. uh, one you could argue is accidental you know it's sort of a, a drunken state where uh, Dinklage sort of puts himself in a position for for him to to die and he's not of sound mind to to sort of see that as a bad thing um I, that's one reason I really like on rewatch was so thankful for the the Bobby uh, Cannaval character who <laughs> I think in most movies would be played as just like the, like the annoying neighbor or something like he right. would be, just be played as the joke. And here, I, I mean, I don't know how you felt, but I, I just felt so grateful that even though he's inserting himself into uh, Dinklage and Patricia Clarkson's characters lives, uh, I'm just like, Oh, someone has to like, we can't, <laughs> let's not leave these people um, to their, you know, they, they're coming from different points of their lives as far as their grief. Like Dinklage is uh, grieving this sort of mentor, like father figure type that he was, you know, he, he worked with at this, this small store based around train sets and models. Um, and then Patricia Clarkson is, is grieving her child's death. And um, I like that the film doesn't make the cannibal character of Joe. It doesn't make him, more nuanced. I think it makes him less nuanced <laughs> and it works even better because he's, he's just bored. He's just bored and he just wants to be like around interesting people. And for whatever reason, he finds these two people interesting uh, and they create this sort of like strangely like warm dynamic between the three of them. Like it probably wouldn't work in any other context or any other time in these people's lives. But in this particular moment, uh, it's sort of like exactly what is needed. Um, I don't know about you. I don't know if you can see the the Joe character and uh, Finbar here um, hanging out really under normal circumstances. <laughs> well, I mean, it reminded me of something like, and this is obviously a very different kind of film, something like As Good As It Gets in a way, where there's yeah, three, yeah, people, pull. Mm-hmm. three people who are dealing in, you know, different different crossroads in their life and and handling it differently. So in this case, Peter Dinklage's uh, Finn is cutting himself off from everyone because he doesn't have anywhere to fit in. The one person that he kind of felt like he belonged with uh, is no longer there. And so he's, he's kind of a, a man without a country sort of. You still, that's why mm-hmm. it makes sense that there's lots of scenes of him just walking around like on train tracks by himself. He's very, he's kind of embraced solitude. And then Patricia Clarkson, is is kind of I guess in them and she's more the the balancing between <laughs> Peter Dinklage who wants nothing to do with anything and Bobby Cannavale who's just talking to everyone and just like his he dealing with he's dealing with his sick father he's also feeling obviously kind of lonely he's just hanging out in his food truck by himself pretty much every day uh, and, and you know Patricia, Patricia Clarkson's character Olivia is kind of stuck in the middle of that dynamic and the whole time I was really hoping that and that it wasn't going to really slip into melodrama. Um, I think the biggest moment you get here is his uh, Finn's blow up in the bar uh, when he's like, take a look, take a look, like freaking out and have, you know, been uh, stood up by, by uh, Joe and, and uh, his father. 
And um, just even when he talks about being a dwarf, it's with this this very subdued, uh, more more grounded approach, and it doesn't really ever slip into uh, melodrama. There's a, there's a lot of moments where it sort of flirts with that. Uh, you know, he's actually he, he uh, kisses both Michelle Williams and Patricia Clarkson, but they never slip into the melodrama of him starting a relationship with anybody. Like, there's no nothing sexual happens. They, as you mentioned, they dodge kind of the the cop out of which you know it could be kind of considered emotionally emotionally manipulative of a cop out to just have him or, or Olivia die at the end of the film. And it and it felt, felt to me that ultimately this is a it's it's a very hopeful movie about three people sort of finding solace in each other. And I think that, you know, if you take a look at McCarthy's filmography, he, he does come across as a very, a very humanist filmmaker. Yeah. I, mean, I would say, like you mentioned the, the visitor uh, earlier, I would say that's, that's probably the closest, maybe one-to-one, um, which I don't, I think, was that the follow-up film to this, to the station agent? I believe so. I, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, I also saw a uh, win-win, which I think leans more uh, comedic, um, that he was involved with, uh, with, uh, Paul Giamatti. Um, this one, you know, I, when you mentioned like the bar scene, as far as it possibly slipping into melodrama, uh, it's, I think it's, it's probably needed just because, um, for the longest stretch, you know, you have this character who, you know, he, he recognizes he's, he's self-aware. Um, you know, he's smart enough to know that, he he gets extra attention because he's a dwarf, mm-hmm. um, but I mean it it really puts me in the you know uh, a headspace that I can't really enter into often as uh, a straight white guy um, that you know I I <laughs> you know I don't get any extra attention just for like walking into a room right. as far as like I've never seen uh, a white dude before <laughs> like that's <laughs> you know yeah. um, especially in Kentucky. Um, but it, it it does a really good job of like establishing like how annoying and not just annoying because um, it's not that people are like even when they're not being cruel about it, just how like bored Finn is with it. Like he's he's bored with himself. He has this great moment where he says, uh, "If people just realize that I'm like so average, basically, and so uninteresting." Like mm-hmm. they would realize how much time they're wasting by like being interested in me just because of my size. And I, I thought, man, that's fantastic. He's not, you know, in another movie, you know, you'd have someone express like, oh, why, why can't someone just see that secretly? Like he's a genius, uh, on uh, guitar. <laughs> you know, why can they right. not look past that? He's like, you know, the, the, the greatest painter that ever lived. Um, no, instead in the station agent, he's just like, I'm, I'm a pretty boring dude. And I like really wish people would treat me like a boring dude. Cause I, he's, he's not someone that is good with people. Like even with his, you know, the, the guy that passes away on him, like the, the brief glimpse you get into their dynamic at work is that there's not a lot being asked of one another socially. Right. Like it's very almost monosyllabic, yeah. like shorthand, like, you know, who's playing the movie tonight. And, you know, they, they exchange like a smirk, you know, at, at some of the other train aficionados that are in there. Um, but yeah, it's not like you, you develop like a very close like relationship with all the like quirks and like the nuances of the individual, individual like characters. So when you bring up like as good as it gets, it's a really, it's a good like way to sort of explain it to people. Um, 
but it's also like that's <laughs> that's going to be the far broader version, oh, right, yeah, of the three sure. people because you you get to learn you turn over every sort of like rock on those you know the Greg Kinnear character certainly Jack Nicholson Helen Hunt you know all of their like particular like uh, comedic beats and how they're going to react to certain things you know after probably the first you know half hour forty minutes here I, th- I think there's still what could be frustrating for people uh, or maybe you know maybe people would really dig it um, as there's still like quite a bit that's unsaid even with our three characters that eventually sort of come to terms with the fact that they they <laughs> mildly enjoy each other's presence or they're they're sort of like weird family unit that they've like created for themselves um there's still a lot we don't know about them and there's still a lot they don't know about each other but i think if you push these characters too much it does probably get into really bad sort of melodrama like you were talking about that it maybe skirts up to with that drunken scene at the bar but um i i dug it because I, I love drunken scenes i love i love characters lashing out when they're inebriated because it makes me feel better about myself especially when i'm someone that's on a podcast where i <laughs> i lash out at the world well it's also for the for the the film they it needs some kind of release because the whole movie he's just really simmering with with like all these complex emotions about mm-hmm. uh both fear like kind of being afraid of being tokenized but then also as you mentioned like the big line that he has which it, it's you bring up as good as it gets again to counterpoint. That's a movie where everyone has their big Oscar speech and their big, like, mm-hmm. this is who yeah. I am. This is how you should see me. Why wasn't, you know, and, and he, in this movie, all you get from Finn is that one line about him feeling like he's just a simple, boring person. Uh, there's, there's also like a level of almost self-loathing uh, baked into, uh, baked into his attitude towards other people that he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't feel like he's worth the attention. And if he's going to be seen, it wants, he wants to, you know, he doesn't want it to be just like, you know, a novelty act basically. Yeah. There's, there's one moment of probably, uh, pure joy. And I guess it's not so pure because even then Finn is like, he's still a little, (laughs) he's a little hesitant to like give in totally to the moment. It's when, uh, him and Joe are uh, chasing trains, and they've mm-hmm. got their they're making their little home video that the you know the camera they got from the Patricia Clarkson character, uh, and you, you do see you know for a brief glimmer that Finn is like you know just sort of reveling in being two idiots you know chasing down a train for for no real reason other than you know their own amusement and um, it's you know I, I don't think it's coincidence that he's sort of chosen uh, a hobby or a passion that is so isolated and sort of stuck in the past. Like it's, <laughs> uh, you have the Bobby Cannavale character who is like so headstrong that he's going to force himself into learning about trains when you, you, I don't think it takes much to read into that. He probably really doesn't give a shit about trains, <laughs> but you know, Finn, he's, he's going to find some way to, to like hang out with this dude. And, um, I don't think, I, th- I think other films may like kind of poke fun at Finn for that. Like, like or like, there's some sort of like hipster card he's playing, where he's like chosen a uh, a hobby or a way to spend his time that doesn't allow other people in. But I don't ever feel that the film is judgmental, uh, really, about much. I mean, maybe the most judgmental thing it has is with the side character that kind of hints at possibly like an abusive relationship with Michelle Williams, and I think then that's that's rightfully so that right. we, should, we should judge that character. But everything else, even with. Uh, you know Joe's food truck. You know he's he's kind of the the oaf or the idiot. But um, I don't I don't think the film pokes fun at him either. He's like he's he's a good son 
who's like yeah. concerned about his dad and he's he's concerned when he makes a friend uh, even if that friend is like kind of trying to put up some barriers he's still concerned about their well-being you know he wants to check in on them and uh, you know i really love the this a lot of the quiet moments too between the either you know either joe and finn uh, I think one of the, when, as you mentioned, one of the few moments of kind of loud, boisterous behavior we get from Finn is is that scene when they're train chasing. But the little, the little quiet character beats, like when they're sharing beef jerky, and he's, you know, that that, that little, just little uh, gestures that that show that he's starting to open up with them. Or it reminds me of uh, a quote from Pulp Fiction where she's like, "Don't you hate hate that uncomfortable silences mm. about?" Why do people feel the need to just yak about bullshit? And this, why can't they just sit quietly and enjoy each other's company? Which is what you get when they're all having uh, they're all having lunch, and Joe has to take off to take care of his dad, and Olivia's just like, we don't have to talk; we could just sit here and eat. And so, so Finn kind of finds a little bit of kinship with her in that way, in that she also uh, she also values the the you know the sound of silence. As Simon and Garfunkel would put it, I guess, and uh, he, you know he he is able to in just be with other people and not feel the pressure of having to, I don't know, perform for them, whatever that means to the to all the onlookers that he's constantly subjected to, or you know live up to some expectation of what what they you know what they're what they're expecting of him. You get those two idiots early in the movie that come over to buy coffee from Joe's truck and they're like, hey, look at this guy. And they're like, basically like taunting him from a distance, things like that. Um, so, so it's really, I think, in, an exercise in Finn starting to realize that that you can connect to people on a deeper level. And uh, I really like that the ensemble that they surround him with here. Not, you mentioned Michelle Williams already. And then there's the little girl Cleo, who who at first has that very, you know, very straightforward interaction with him, just like, like kids do. And then it ultimately ends up being sort of the symbolic turning point for him to... to speak at her class at the end and of course that's the way this film ends yeah i like that also she uh i, I believe she uses uh you know the m word um uh, which um, she does yeah which i mean i i feel like you know we talked about 99 from 99 uh earlier and talked about how, how old i am not you you're still you're still a young man strangely <laughs> we're the same age but you're still young i'm old but um <laughs> i i like that uh that moment because for like when i was growing up that that word there was nothing offensive at least uh, about that word to me, I realize I don't have that life experience, so it's easier for me to say that. But I'm saying legitimately, like that wouldn't the movies I would have watched if someone had said that. I don't even think it would have played the same as it did here. Right. And I actually, I really thought it was smart to have a child say it, to say it out of innocence, where there's nothing, nothing shaded. Where like you know, if an adult comes up and says that, you're thinking, okay, this is some sort of aggressive challenge that right. they should they should know better. They know like they're they're like trying to like start something with this guy. Um, and I, I like that you know Finn. It doesn't even like <laughs> it's not even a beat. You know, he's still he's like looking at this like train and is just like, no, I'm not. You know, I'm dwarf and <laughs> like as I said, like it, there's a through line in this film where he's just sort of he's bored with the perception of himself entirely. So even those moments that I think in a, uh, you know, you look at something like a uh, Forrest Gump, like 
<laughs> where you know he's being bullied as a kid and that leads to like this this you know swelling of the music and he like you know he breaks off his magic legs you know that sort of <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing and here it's just like batted away like no that's not you know that's not what i am i'm this and that's it and then the kid i think the kid in multiple sequences like has these brief like little conversations if you can call them that was Finn and then just like walks like not walks off but like runs off like a you know like a child like just like that's enough of that and it's it's sweet and it's it's tender but it's not saccharine sweet like the way they handle that and so anytime like this was one of those moments when the the child was introduced that I was like oh god what does this kid say like well how do they play this and so I was I was thankful that McCarthy is very restrained with all of his uh, melodramatic moments and all of his uplifting moments are you know they're they're all at the same level here. This is a nice happy medium with this film. It's a very tonally balanced movie, and, yeah. and the fact that he says so much with with so little, you know, it's easy to see why this screenplay actually won a BAFTA and an Indie Spirit Award. And uh, I think it's the the combination of McCarthy's script and the way that Dinklage plays it that that really uh elevates the material here to to feel like something something fresh something different and i found a really great quote that i want to read james christopher of the time said when he, in his review he said the brilliance of peter dinklage's performance as the ironclad loner is that he doesn't much care yet there's something deeply affecting about his stoicism and suspicion that has nothing to do with artificial sweeteners disney sentiment or party political broadcasts on behalf of dwarves dwarves uh, Dinklage just gets on with his performance like an actor who can't understand why he's got the lead role. And I think that, that you know, there's probably a meta-narrative there in that mm-hmm. Peter Dinklage, obviously, is a dwarf in real life, not used to getting lead lead roles in films, not used to having this level of attention. And I think that, that I'm sure that informed his performance to some degree where... Finn, Finn doesn't want to be a part of things. He doesn't want that kind of attention. If if that's all he's going to get from people, which, as we see in the film, that's mostly what the kind of attention he gets from these small town people who are not used to seeing a, a dwarf living in the abandoned train station on the end of town. Uh, he'd just rather not be a part of it at all. So I, I, I like that uh, that connection, that parallel between Finn and the actor portraying him. There was a film uh, that came out, I think, last year called "I Think We're Alone Now." Uh, that he's in another. I mean, I I didn't hear about it until. I mean, this is gonna be the the podcast where we just promote how great libraries are. But it was at <laughs> my, it was at my local library, and I'm like, oh cool, I like Peter Dinklage, um, and it's got Elle Fanning in it, and it's like this post apocalyptic thing, and he's just a guy that uh, is pretty much living like in a library uh, by himself. So I. I thought of that as like a, uh, you know, more uh, genre heavy, obviously, uh, version of Peter Dinklage being a loner. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I recall, I don't know. That may be the only time I've seen him play a character where I don't think um, like his height is like mentioned at that. I think that that role could have easily been played by, you know, any actor, whereas um, the the quote you just read, I mean, that's is a great way to put it. Like the, the sort of meta aspect of it, where you know he often is playing a character where at least someone has to verbalize that he's a dwarf. Uh, right. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. You know, that's that he's pretty much like comedic relief. Not that he's like a funny character, but like he's the if you can say there's a romantic comedy element to Three Billboards, that's it with right. his sort of his subplot with the Francis McDormand character. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine 
being successful actor. He's you know he's very accomplished and um, being limited in that way, which is it's something that I, I said earlier. You know, I, I don't have that life experience. The most I would have is people would think that you know if they're from another place, I have a funny accent. That would be that would be the extent of it. It's sad, but it's also like I, I like seeing these sort of life-affirming films from a perspective I would never have, right? Like, I don't want <laughs> I don't want Mr. Dinklage to always have to play a role that references uh, being a dwarf. But if there is a film that's going to, like, present that sort of particular point of view, uh, I, you know, I want to see it. And I want to see, like, him, like, in it. So, like, the station agent, you know, not that we need uh, 20 films about, <laughs> you know, dwarves who, like, are obsessed with trains, um, but there is, there's definitely something to that. And I, I, I'm sure like he feels some of that, you know, burden, like that other actors don't have to, don't have to, you know, carry on their shoulders that he's going to present a viewpoint of the marginalized. Um, and that's something that he has to probably have to embrace as a performer that he's, he's one of the few that has been given the opportunity to do that. That was the other thing I struggled with was this, you know, presenting with this film because, like, just to bring up the other stuff that <laughs> I had on the table with like Michael Fassbender, I mean, he's playing a guy that gets laid too much. <laughs> like, you know, that's <laughs> that's a very particular problem, but it's one that I'm sure, like, you know, the the Finn character would think like, oh, poor you, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you right. <laughs> and most people would. So, um, I, I hope people who you know, if they have interest in this film, um that they they would come to it and you know get beyond that because i do think that it accomplishes that as well for long stretches i I do think that while acknowledging you know the particular viewpoint of this character um you and you know thankfully him uh finn can actually forget that too like because some of the other problems you know some of the characters like patricia clarkson their problems come to the forefront and thankfully give him an, an outlet to be uh, a caretaker in a way where he can he can focus all of his input on on someone else and not just deflecting uh, interest in himself. Like I, I think that's that that's not, that's an element of the film we've not really talked about. Where you know Finn for most part is he's not adept at handling that. That's the other kind of interesting thing is like I think usually we see these sort of marginalized characters on screen and we sort of deify them in a way. And it's like if only someone would give them the opportunity, but there is like a price you pay for isolating yourself from from people who express interest in you. And so when you have to like embrace someone else, it's there's these awkward steps to it. So like when Patricia Clarkson is going through something and is trying to tell him like he can't really help, he he doesn't really have the skill set to to sort of navigate those waters. And there's some like awkward, awkward, uncomfortable moments between the two that like you know, are not warm. They're, <laughs> they're, right. this is not as good as it gets where, uh, you know, it's two grown men fighting over a cute puppy, you know, between them. <laughs> and also for Finn, I think recontextualizes things a little bit that he gets so absorbed in his own insecurities and his own problems that he forgets, Hey, you know, the people around me, that everybody has, yes, I'm marginalized in this very specific way. And, and again, obviously there's a lot of pressure on, on Dinklage and McCarthy that this is all right. This is our one shot at capturing the, the, the dwarfism experience mm-hmm. on film. And I, I'd like to imagine, especially since, uh, you know, apparently McCarthy wrote this movie for these actors that he, he knew Dinklage a little bit before this. 
then maybe Dinklage had a little bit of input in the way the character was portrayed. I would imagine that was probably the case, especially for a small film like this, a lot of creative control and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, everybody's going through, everybody has problems, might not be the same problems as yours. Everybody has these issues and everybody processes it in different ways. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Patricia Clarkson, who, again, like Dinklage, had kind of a breakout year. I mean, she'd been making films forever before this, but between this movie and Pieces of April, which got her her so far only Oscar nomination, uh, this was also, I think, part of her really being recognized as, uh, you know, as like an indie queen, basically. From this point on, she's popped up in things all over the place. Uh, and the same thing with Bobby Cannavale, who I didn't even really know until, like, I think a couple of years later, there was that Shall We Dance movie, which also is on Hoopla, I noticed earlier, uh, with Richard Gere and Jennifer Lopez, that he has kind of a small role, a smallish role in that. And I think he should be a far bigger star yeah, at this right? point he, than what he is. Every time I see him, I think he should be like, you know, leading man in like romantic comedies or like action movies or something. He's like, I don't, I mean, I'm not knocking anybody, but I don't see too much difference as far as like uh, charismatic skill set between him and like uh, The Rock, you know? And it's like, obviously, there's a physical difference right. in why The Rock's in the action movies, but I'm like, I just like, whenever he's on screen, I just want to hang out with this dude. It, and he's playing a guy I don't really want to hang out with. Because like, <laughs> like, he would never stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't allow much in the way of oxygen in the room. And like, I, I'm, I'm a podcaster. I can't have the other person. Like, you know, they're <laughs> just saying, oh, and that's Mike. He's here to do the intro and the outro and we'll see you next time. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned in Patricia Clarkson, it's just so strange. Like for another podcast I was watching uh, just this last week, Friends with Benefits. Um, mm, yeah. and, and she's like, a dramatically different character and I'm for uh, but yet again same thing where I was just like I was just so happy to see her and she's just playing like the the hippie mother of the Mila Kunis character um I think yeah th- this I, w- I want to touch more on like the meta thing you said earlier where mm-hmm. it's like a character you know these three character actors um are given such a small space. Like, I don't, you know, this wouldn't work on the stage, obviously, because, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know how, you, I guess you could get creative as far as doing the the train chasing sequence, but it would probably be, look a little silly on the stage. Um, but it has that intimate feel where you, you mentioned the presumed sort of creative license they have, where it feels like if they had an instinct, they could follow up on it. And so, I've, you know, I, it's not the type of film that we're, we're going to get like a, a three hour documentary, you know, like almost you know, 20 years later. But uh, I would be interested in um, checking out any interviews about this, like to see how much of that, like, you know, how, if some of these scenes played longer than what was anticipated. Because when uh, Olivia is going through uh, basically sort of a similar thing to Finn where she's kind of forced, she's kind of put back into a box, right? Mm -hmm. She's put in the box of like grieving mother, uh, by her ex or soon to be ex, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, because she, especially towards the end of the film, she has kind of spirals, you know, has a downward spiral a little bit, obviously, uh, culminating in her suicide attempt, but because she finds mm-hmm. out her ex or soon to be ex or estranged ex or whatever the situation is there. We don't really get a lot of detail about John Slattery uh, and his connection, their relationship at that point. But I guess he's having a baby with another woman and it just reopens all those old wounds. She actually moved away, moved to this town to get away from that that perception of the the grieving mother, as you mentioned. I think that's probably why this this threesome, um, why they have the not just their personalities, but why they have the the role in this this new little friendship that they have is you have two people that uh, have 
chosen exile in a way. Like Finn is yeah. given this piece of land and he's just, he's not even really given the opportunity to like check out for himself. If this is someplace he wants to settle. Um, I just, I'm going to, uh, if you have to edit this out, I understand. <laughs> I'm going to apologize for my dog, uh, <laughs> okay. who is, uh, he was sleeping and snoring, uh, during most of this, but now, now there's someone, you know, doing a disgraceful act of probably like walking or exercising outside <laughs> on the sidewalk. He has something to add about the station agent. Maybe I, yeah. you know, when I'm editing my own stuff, I always just put him into continuity cause I know I'm too <laughs> lazy to edit him out. So I'm like, and yeah, Brody agrees with me, of course. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, <laughs> the Joe character, uh, he he shares that like he you know, he's taking over his father's food truck, but he's trying to like make the best of it. He's thinking like he's thinking this isolation would be the worst aspect of it, so he's going to cling to anything. And you know the problem is he's just happened to <laughs> in his exile, he's chosen as two partners uh, on this life raft. People that like you know the one good thing about being there was going to be the silence, <laughs> people not in their business. <laughs> so I can see like a. You know, a very Adam Sandler-like comedy where Joe's like the lead character and it's just like these two frustrating people or people that he's frustrating by like trying to like involve them in like zany activities. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, he's definitely the third wheel in, in this film. But um, if you don't have him, you know, you, you have like sort of like a sad movie where I think maybe audiences would – I don't know if they turn against Olivia, but I think they would eventually turn against Finn mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't have – Joe pushing him so much and pushing him in the way where he's, you know, he makes it sort of lighthearted and kind of abrasive. Yeah. He, and, and he's clearly coming from a good place that he's just genuinely being friendly. There's even that, that uh, moment where he's like, Oh, do you, is there a club for you people? And then everybody's kind of like, Oh shit. What did he just, what did he mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, people that love trains and are like, Oh, okay. Thank God. Uh, the, the, the movie gets a lot of, uh, a lot of juice out of the, the contrast of the personality types. You know, I'm thinking of the, the moment where Finn is reading his book while he's eating and, and <laughs> Joe's like, why don't you sit over here? Why don't you sit over here? And he's like, uh, because you'll just talk to me. He's like, no, I won't. Not if you don't want me to. Look, I got a book. I'll read too. And then nine <laughs> minutes later, you know, she's like, bro, you were timing me. That's cold. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, you know, they, they, it's, it's not big and loud and wonk wonk like uh, like a Hollywood right. movie would be like mm-hmm. when you were saying about him, the the big studio version of this I was picturing like Joe in the middle making a crazy face and uh, Peter Dinklage and Patricia Clarkson standing like on either side of him arms crossed with disapproving looks on their face uh, it would be like that kind of thing that's uh, but McCarthy keeps it grounded he keeps it real by not letting it not letting the situation get out of hand, I, I guess is what it, yeah. you know, the little, the yeah. little, little moments, little bits of dialogue. It, everything is very understated. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's to the, to the film's credit really. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's already sort of like, it's strange in how it dismisses. Um, it's, <laughs> it's sort of odd premise of like a guy who <laughs> inherits this sort of defunct, like, you know, station for for a train that no longer even runs past anymore. That in that specific area, this little plot of land, um, which I don't think the film ever really answers why the food truck is there. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I was watching it with my wife, I'm like, why is he parking there? Like, why is that his spot? Like, because people have to like drive up <laughs> to him. Like, don't you think he should be like in the middle of this small town or something? That's like it seems like they walk everywhere, but uh, he's really on the outskirts. So. Um, 
I don't know. I, I there's there's little touches like that, which you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, our main character has no interest in asking those questions. So, <laughs> so I think in another movie, you'd have Finn be like, "What are you doing on my property?" or "What are you doing out here?" But he, you know, he can't be bothered. Maybe initially, you know, Joe would drive up thinking, "Oh, a train station, cool. That'll be a lot of a high traffic area," and then be like, "Yeah, this is not working," and drive somewhere else. I think the closest that it gets to basically broad company comedy is the fact that Olivia almost runs him off the road, and then. Almost Twice. runs him off the road again, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was which was really which was a funny moment. It, it's um, I just I feel like McCarthy really understands how to punctuate the underlying, not even underlying, but the kind of sadness, the fact that these are all very disconnected, despondent people, and punctuating it with those little bits of humor so that it doesn't overtake the the story at hand but it just as you, as you said with you know with Joe just livens it up and adds that little bit of levity and makes it a little more accessible and and challenge the, the characters challenge each other i guess Joe's really challenging them more than anything else <laughs> because otherwise the two of them would be sitting and silence the whole movie it wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be a whole lot of forward momentum for their yeah, stories yeah Joe's Joe's the the uh even though Patricia Clarkson Olivia's the one that uh you know we have two i guess car sequences that are as, as close as you get to action scenes right. <laughs> where someone has to, you know, Joe basically is the, the explosions you bring into this dynamic to at least push them to like move, <laughs> you know, move into town and speak to another human being, which I think coming from a, a very small town in Kentucky is another element I really liked because I think, uh, you know, growing up and hating being in a small town and wanting to get away. Um, and then as you get older, like sort of reflecting back, I was like, oh, there's there's a lot of cool elements of living in a small town, uh, and a lot of things you end up missing, uh, which I think is normal as you get older. Um, I, I liked that, especially with two loner characters who, as you said, Olivia sort of settled there to to get away and to sort of be alone with her thoughts and not being reminded of you know a life that she's not quite uh, let go of. Um, that it doesn't glorify and doesn't condemn the, the sort of small town experience. You know, you have the, the idiots and the busybodies that are, you know, uh, a bit too much into your personal space or your business. Um, but then you have the, you know, those, those moments of, of levity where, <laughs> yeah, even though Joe can't, you know, he won't allow his buddy to read, you know, it does give Finn a chance to like, I don't want to say inspire because it's not that type of movie, but you know, he, he gets to share a part of himself with his buddy, even though he's forced to do so, <laughs> he gets to share this, this hobby. And at least for one moment, take, you know, small, small measure of glee. in the fact that this, you know, food truck guy from the city who previously would know nothing about trains is like cheering. Like they just won the super bowl or something. Cause they like are filming one that's going past them. So I, I, I think it's, it presents, you know, both sides of that that uh, that sort of small town experience um, without without treating it like you know it's a rom com set in New York where right. it's all the good without the bad. Yeah, and you get just enough of Michelle Williams, Emily, and Cleo to to add a little uh, add a little you know variety to to uh, to the town and kind of. Um, I guess represent the people that uh, uh, the people that live in this area outside of the main three that we're really concerned with, and mm-hmm. then by the end, it's it kind of becomes that situation where the three of them have entered each other's lives. There's some struggle back and forth, and then by the end, Finn makes the choice to to go to Cleo's class and speak. And even though stupid Jacob <laughs> comes in there making <laughs> making fun of him and all that, and it's taken outside. He he basically it's indicative of the fact I think that 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 moment is is the film statement that 
he's going to obviously continue to face prejudice where he goes, but it, it kind of reassures him through these through the friendships that he's made, through through the fact that he's kind of opened himself up a little bit to persist through that, that it's worth kind of uh, putting himself out there, pushing through the the naysayers and you know the the uh, the the people that that would just see him as as a dwarf and look past that to, to you know to experience like the authentic interactions with other people you know that moment and then at the end kind of the button on that is the three of them clearly enjoying each other's company sitting there having conversations about you know relationships and she's like oh you know olivia's like you should get a pair of of glasses for her it's worth it kind of talking like Mm -hmm. like friends like they're opening up to each other and i think it's it's a really sweet moment that they get to that place where yeah maybe they as you said maybe they'd haven't they don't know each other completely. They're still, you know, they're still going to butt heads consistently, but there, there's a connection there. And whether it lasts or not, it's, it's gotten the three of them through, through this period of their lives to some degree, at least started the process. And the, the great thing about that classroom sequence is that Finn gets to be exactly what uh, he wanted to be perceived as. He gets, <laughs> he gets to be boring to young kids. Like, you know, after, after the one comment, you know, talking about, uh, his his height. Um, we have the kids wanting to move past trains. Like, why are you talking about trains so much? Well, what about planes? Aren't they cooler? And it's like, you know, that's exactly what he said. Like in that sort of drunken moment, those those sort of late hour conversations where there's a little bit more intimacy and a little more honesty with Olivia. Um, all he you know all he is is like a boring old guy to these kids. Yeah, and that's like that's it's a strange victory, but it's like it's perfect for this movie that that's, that's the win is that he got to be the boring old guy. Uh, and that's all, that's all he is. He's just a weird dude that likes trains and that's, that's all he wants to be, uh, at least at that particular moment in his life. Right. Exactly. To get him past this, this grief, uh, you know, the, the, the grief of losing his friend and, and the fact that he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really have anyone in his life. And apparently he likes horses too, as we find out in that one scene where he's smoking mm-hmm. the joy. <laughs> Joe's like, no, no, give me that back. You're, you're, you're ruining the moment. Um, <laughs> So uh, be- before we start winding down the episode, is there anything else about the station agent that we haven't touched on or that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to throw out there? Well, I want to just let listeners know that uh, As Good As It Gets is like one of my favorite movies. So it's like, you know, I don't want to seem like I was throwing shade. No, no. The, yeah, I love big, that movie as well. Yeah. Uh, the big Hollywood production. Uh, I think these, you know, it would make a fine double feature. How about that? But yeah. No, uh, if I'm going to throw any shade uh, on that note, James L. Brooks did a film called uh, How Do You Know with Reese Witherspoon and Paul Rudd, Owen Wilson. Uh, And there's actually a moment like during this conversation I was reminded of where uh, you were talking about basically like allowing these actors to – like just share the space in silence and they don't make like a big thing of it. There's, you know, that's all. It's just Olivia saying like, we don't have to talk and then mm-hmm. they just enjoy their food. Uh, there's a dinner sequence. I think a first date sequence um, with Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon in that film uh, where she says the same thing. And what do they do? They cue up the music. They like go to like, a, you know, a close up shot, reverse shot on both these like beautiful actors that are well lit. I mean, it looks Looks like a Nancy Myers production as far as this this dinner sequence. It's just two people sitting at a table, but they were probably like burning through like millions of dollars of uh, time, and that's that's a big difference. So as opposed to like you know dumping on us because it gets, I'm gonna throw uh, how do you know under the bus because <laughs> I don't think anyone anyone's no one's gonna hate tweet me about that. Which yeah. uh, 
Yeah. I, I, have, I have to admit, I don't, I don't even dislike. How do you know that much? I just dislike. I dislike that scene uh, greatly, uh, and it pales in comparison to the station agent. Yeah, throw that one under under the train. I guess would be more appropriate for this. There movie. we go. There we go. That's uh, how we, we but, sell this. But that's a good. Uh, that's a, you know that's a good distinction to make. I also love as, as good as it gets. I think that's a really a really uh, interesting film as well to discuss. But uh, you, I think so many people see that, you know, we don't have to worry about people being exposed to the big Hollywood version of these stories. I think it helps to even though you picked the movie that's made what five million dollars domestically, I think it's it's important for people to to seek out these smaller films. And now, as I mentioned with Dinklage, this is a good time. If you're, if you're jonesing for more Peter Dinklage. This is a good uh, a good film to check out and and kind of see just how how much range he has as an actor. Yeah, I mean it's it's terrible podcast promotion on my my part because you know pick something that a lot of people have seen maybe they'll maybe they'll <laughs> click on so I apologize to you for for allowing me to to bring down your numbers by my mere presence but uh, that's what I do uh, every week on my show so that's you know, that's <laughs> <There> just you <laughs> that's my brand. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Michael Denniston, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Sure. You can find uh, 99 from 99 on uh, Twitter. Uh, we're probably on Instagram, although I don't know why for, for an audio podcast. I've tried to get better about finding ways to really like use that. And uh, I like I use one of your episodes. I think it was Some Like It Hot, where you can now like on uh, I use Overcast to listen to my podcast. Mm, so you yeah. can like clip out like a minute long sequence that you like. And so maybe I'll start doing that. But um yeah, you can you can find me there. I'm on uh, too many podcasts to name. So, you know, for the purposes of uh, having an arc with this one, we'll just stick with 99 for 99. And if you like what you hear there, uh, you know, just send me a mention or shout out. Uh, and uh, do people email anymore? I don't think they do that. <laughs> Not so much. Uh, it's all DMs at this point, isn't it? With I, I guess so. Uh, as far as I know, when I set up the accounts like two years ago, everything is 99 for 99 at Gmail on Twitter, Instagram, we have a Facebook page if people still do that. Um, and, uh, but mainly, you know, just check out the show. If you, if you find a movie or are reminiscing about one from that year, um, you know, we'll, we will hopefully cover it. You know, you mentioned Rupert Everett earlier. Uh, we're not going to be covering Inspector Gadget. <laughs> oh man, that would have been an interesting that, conversation. That one got, that one did not make the, the cut, but, uh, we do have an ideal husband, um, and you know, plenty of other stuff coming up. I, you know, we've not yet done Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, we've not yet, obviously, got to Fight Club. I think we're in the middle of summer, just like we are now, as of this recording. So we've got uh, just over thirty episodes, and uh, God, sixty some more to this this commitment that I've made <laughs> to the year nineteen ninety nine. And uh, I, I would like to say it's been a great mistake. So I hope you make <laughs> that mistake and <laughs> check out the show. There you go. Very good. Well, I'd love to have you back on some point. Maybe we can talk about something that's a little more cheery. Not that this is a depressing movie. This is actually a very hopeful movie in a lot of ways, but it is kind of, uh, you know, I guess sullen for a lot of its runtime. Could have been worse. Could yeah, have been it's shame. True. It's true. You know? It could have been shame or it could have been, uh, yeah, <laughs> up in the air, which I guess is also up in the air kind of has a little bit of a similar tone to this in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I would say you know there's some there's some laughs and uh, yeah, and there's some some drama, but yeah, we will go uh, maybe not broad comedy, but we will go with a, a much lighter touch there next time go. around. But yeah, I've really enjoyed it. So you know, thank you for extending the offer, and uh, you know, hopefully, I can get you on one of my podcasts. Yeah, uh, I didn't mention you know that's I've, I've got plenty of them. So you know, we'll we'll do something together. This has been a really good conversation, and uh, really enjoying uh, your episodes. So. 
Uh, I know this one will not be listened to nearly as much <laughs> as Skyfall, but uh, you know, I, I, at least I get to listen to it and enjoy there it. There you go. Uh, so. That's all, it's all it's all for you, Michael. Thank it's you. All for you. Uh, that's what I figured. So thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Thanks, man. How's it going? If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the low KED.